Hello and welcome to Nightlight. This session will bring a close to our introductory time together on the book of Job. We've been exploring some of the, I don't want to say the high points, because there's many high points, and I'm having to leave a number of them unaddressed. At the close of our time today, I'll point you to some material for those of you who want to delve deeper into each chapter verse by verse, if you if you want to do that. And I hope you will do that, because I'm, uh, this overview is just what I'm saying. It's an overview, and it tends to leave many things out. But more than that, I'll, I hope you will do your own study, because as I've said a couple of times in other sessions, you're not going to get black and white, concrete, mathematical equation-like answers <clears throat> to your questions about the mystery of evil, suffering, spiritual warfare, and God's purposes and all of it. You're not going to get answers like that so that you can read the book or listen to the tape series or CD series or whatever whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and then put it back on the shelf and say, well, I'm glad I read that. I got that, that question answered. It, it won't come like that. But it will come as the voice of the Holy Spirit quickens to you issues that regard that relate to your personal, private walk with Him. And sometimes in that insight, you, you gain personal uh, insight about yourself, and you also can gain larger insight about the whole body of Christ and the whole issue of warfare cosmically that we are engaged in. You know, this is being recorded several weeks before you will hear it. And we never know what world events will unfold between now and when you hear this message. But I realized as we got into the the recording of these things that there was a, a strong prophetic mantle on it for such a time as this. And so... Regardless of what has happened or is happening at the time you're hearing this, I believe it's a clear rhema word to you and where you are and what you're living through. So for that reason, again, I really am hopeful that you will take the initiative to do your own study in more detail to uh, fill in the blanks that I'm obviously having to leave. Well, that being said... Uh, I want to return just briefly to uh, Job's three friends. I said in our last session, the only good thing they did was to show up, keep their mouths shut, and sit for seven days weeping and mourning with Job over his sorrow. That's really the only thing they did right. The moment they opened their mouths, Though they said a lot of things that are good in themselves, the basic context of their entire speech to Job was to restate the theology of their position and to talk about what they thought about God rather than to talk about comfort and the presence of God and the goodness of God and the love of God and to be honest about things they did not understand because one of the 
One of the sad characteristics of theology, although I'm, I mean, I'm not saying theology is bad, theology is the study of the subject of God, but that becomes bad when it does not take you to God himself. This is exactly what Jesus was referring to in John 5 when speaking to the theologians of that day. He said, you search the scriptures. In them you think you have life, but they point to me, and you will not come to me in order that you might have life. Have you ever wondered how in the world it could be possible for the the people of Jesus' day to have studied the scriptures, the prophetic scriptures, all their lives and had all the study of their forebears also given to them uh, so that they were thoroughly equipped doctrinally, they thought. But when the real God, the fulfillment of their scriptures, appeared in human flesh right in front of them, they could not see it. And I've had students in times past say to me, well, God's not really fair. I mean, Jesus Jesus shows up with all these manifestations in his life that are not specifically spelled out in Scripture. And uh, so should Jesus be so hard on them when uh, they don't recognize it? Well... That's just a reflection of our own pharisaical misunderstanding of how, how it all works. If, if they had sought the Lord on the heart level instead of merely on the doctrinal level, they would have had eyes to see and ears to hear. Simeon did. Anna did. In, in the opening story of Luke. There were other people who did. But it seemed like the more theologically astute people were, the less spiritually awake they were. You will not come to me in order that you might have life. So please keep that in mind. I keep it in mind. Uh, I, I'm, I'm totally aware when I'm studying for studies like this. I get so into it, I, get, I, I fall into the, the, the well of information that's in front of me and uh, every now and then the Holy Spirit will just whisper to me, are you, are you listening to me? Are you looking for my voice in all of this? What, what, what they will hear you say means nothing to them if they don't hear from me through you. So, I'm not, I'm not beating up on Job's three friends uh, although it's tempting to do in places, but I'm not beating up on them. I'm 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 using them as a a mirror to check out my own tendencies, make sure by God's grace that I don't become like them in these areas. Now, what what Job is going through then? And what the Holy Spirit, I believe, is meaning to get across to us in this conflict between Job and his so-called three friends is that, keep in mind, this is not just a story about Job. It's Job's story about us. 
So it won't make a bit of sense to you, really. It won't make any valuable sense to you if you just read through the book of Job and say, well, now I know about Job. The book of Job, as I told you before, it bears repeating. Job is placed in the 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 context of Scripture in the line of creation, fall of man, the rise of uh, evil, the establishment of evil in the universe, the uh, corruption of the planet, the flood, and the post-flood civilization. And Job lands somewhere in the post-flood civilization. And so when I read it, it, what comes to my mind is uh, God has spoken to us about the entrance of evil and, and all of that, but then he seems to interrupt the big picture historical story with a very personal picture, but it's still a big picture story, a very personal story of a man named Job, but the purpose of the story of Job is to Give me a picture of the whole human race and our struggles with the oncoming eventual battles that we're going to all face, both historically and personally. And so Job is in a a new battle now with theology. And are you? Have, Have you hit upon some things in your life that make you question some of the theological black and white irrefutable dogmas that you've been trained to believe. Uh, you know, any any truth that's really true can bear up under the scrutiny of examination and re-examination. You know, one of the sayings of the Reformers during the Reformation was ever-reforming. Reformed and ever-reforming. I wish that had been true more than it has been. I wish there was more Reformation going on in the minds and thoughts of many who claim to be part of that that theological persuasion. We're all, to some degree, affected by the Reformation. Uh, I mean, even even many Roman Catholics I know re-examine some of their thinking as a result of what happened in the Reformation. But uh, don't think for a minute that the Reformation did not st- stagnate into another form of hierarchical, legalistic, dogmatic uh, control of people. And now we're in the midst of a, a, a a great awakening and some people are asking some very hard questions and it's amazing how many people are upset by those questions i mean their their security is not in the truth their security is in the dogma you know what i mean by dogma you know dogma means uh that that which we have established as truth and which we uh do not believe there can be any variation. I'm, I'm, I'm murdering the actual meaning of the word, but I won't get into that right now. Well, I, you all know what I'm talking about anyway. Uh, this is how denominations are born. Uh, denominations are born out of a real move of God that then, by the second or third generation, becomes uh, a memorial of the real move of God, 
and those who adhere to that memorial uh, treat the memory of the move as the real thing and they dogmatize it. And some of you have heard me tell the silly, funny story, but it's il- il- a good illustration of uh, the, the family that always cut the end off the ham before they put it in the pan. And uh, three or four generations of mothers and grandmothers and daughters did that. And then one day one of the great-grandchildren said, why, why do we do this? And somebody said, well, I don't know, we've always done it. So she went in and asked her great-grandma, uh, why, do, why do we always cut the end off the, the, the ham? She said, I don't know why y'all do it. I did it because my pan was too short. <laughs> I mean, it's a silly story, but it's probably a true story. But it's exactly what, what I'm talking about, though it's a silly example. We do things that at the time had purpose and seemed right, but it may have only been right and had purpose in the context of its original use. Then we go beyond that uh, to whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do next. But see, in the mind of people who are not in relationship to God, but only in relationship to their thoughts about God, their beliefs in their beliefs, Anything that threatens any aspect of such beliefs is dangerous and seen as uh, evil. And anyone who asks the question is treated as an enemy. And so uh, that's how you end up with people being burned at the stake and killed and drawn and quartered in portions of church history. Uh, for that reason, the Huguenots, you know. Oh, I don't want to get off on all those details, those gruesome details. But the point is, right now there's so many questions and so many awakenings and so many struggles and so many resistances to tradition that many traditionalists are just really seeing it as a dangerous end of uh, Christendom. Well, I, I've been around this thing for over 50 years. And I can tell you there's a whole lot of things in, quote, Christendom that needs a reformation. And so uh, I'm not afraid at all of this young generation asking hard questions. I'm much more afraid of the elders not being prepared to have any answers to those questions. That's that's what I'm more concerned about. But anyway, this is part what the Holy Spirit is seeking to awaken in us when we read the story of Job and we put ourselves in Job's shoes as coming through an experience that doesn't fit the creed of his theological dogma. And now, because it doesn't fit He's got to decide whether he's going to be uh, a rebel against the dogma and move on into more realistic understanding of the real God, or is he going to crumble under the weight of accusation from his theological, the theological arguments of his friends? 
And I believe that every one of us, to some degree, are having to come to that same conclusion. If you're listening to me here today and you are secretly, privately going through some things in your life where it's caused you to question some of the things you've been taught, I'm not talking about basic revelation like the the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, his deity. Uh, even if Even if you question those things, if you're questioning them because you really want to know the truth and you realize you've just been bowing to dogma that you never have seriously embraced, then by all means, uh, do it. I remember one of my older boys walking in my study one day and he looked really nervous and he, the Lord spoke to my heart and he said, just be quiet, don't react to this. Because I was all set to react by the look on his face and he said to me, i, I got to tell you something, and i really uh, kind of nervous to say it, but I need to say it. And then finally he said, after what seemed like an hour, it was only a minute or two, I'm not sure I believe anything that you believe. And my head went into panic mode, and my heart went peaceful and quiet. And I realized what was happening. He was graduating from childish believism under my shadow into young adult struggle with what was true. And I had the grace to say to him, that's okay. I don't want you to believe what I believe because I believe it and you feel obligated to believe it also. I want you to find the truth for yourself. As long as you're truly seeking for the truth, you will find it. And you know, that uh, that's a great story if it had been wrapped up and completed in a couple of weeks or months or even years, but it took several years, several years for us to pray and cry and struggle from a distance and watch him struggle and watch him rebel and watch him test things out for himself before the Lord uh, or not before the Lord. And uh, in the long run, grace got us all through that. And now he is a godly husband and father and godly man. But you know what? He could have been just a religious prig who just believed from the neck up what others believed because they all were socially united in their belief. And I'm so grateful that uh, that was not true for him. And for any of you out there who are going through struggles with your teenagers or your young adult children where they seem to not believe anything you believe, uh, you just pray that God will use that to bring them into reality, capital R, uh, through the circumstances of whatever wrong choices they may make. Stop overreacting with legalistic fear that God is angry because they're having questions. You know, I, I may be misinterpreting this, but you, you know that in the beginning of the story of Job, it makes a point that Job was 
a man of of righteousness, a man of in spiritual integrity, but it includes in that description of Job uh, that he he offered sacrifice to God on behalf of his children in case they had sinned. And some people think that that was a good thing, and maybe in a certain context, from God's point of view, it, which is the only point of view that matters, it was a good thing in his heart, but it was not a full revelation of the heart of God. God doesn't need sacrifice to keep him from killing your children because they angered him somehow. Now that's that's a complete misunderstanding of the character of God or of atonement. But God's not judging Job based on revelation that won't be given for another several thousand years, but he's he's judging Job according to the understanding that he has in his generation and judges him to be righteous, to be integrous, to be the real deal more than any other people on the face of the earth. And because of that, you know what we've already talked about, Job ends up becoming the battlefield on which God and Satan play out this, for lack of a better term, this wager, that Job will come through this loss, these tragedies, uh, and he will come through... uh, much more the person that God intended him to be, while at the same time, God is celebrating him in his immaturity. And here again, that is also true of you. God sees you as his perfect son or his perfect daughter. The way Clay, you don't know what a mess I am. Yes, I do. I, well, I know what a mess I've been. And I, me- I say, a mess I've been. I know what a mess I am now in certain areas. Uh, hopefully we'll have the wisdom not to be comparing our messes with each other. But my point is, the older I get, the more I spend my life with the Lord, the more I see his goodness, and the more I see his goodness, the more I see my sin. It's not that he's rubbing my face in my sin, it's that when the light gets brighter in the room, the darkness shows up, the dust shows up, the, the dinginess shows up. And uh, I'm, I'm, that's why I'm always quoting, he who has begun a good work in me will finish it. I probably quote that verse more than any other verse in the scriptures because I need it so much. He who has begun a good work in me will finish it. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know when we see him, we shall be like him. Anyway, so Job goes through this inner transition that's really a traumatic transformation theologically. He he knows what he doesn't believe anymore, but he doesn't know what he does believe. Have you ever been there? Boy, I've been there. I come to a place where I know what I don't believe, and I can sure tell people very clearly what I don't believe. And then they rightly ask me, well, 
claim, instead of being so vociferous about what you don't believe, tell me what, what you do believe. And then say, well, I don't know yet. I haven't come to the conclusion yet, but I know this can't be right. And in that context, I am somewhat a tiny bit like Job, who says those very same, same things in different forms in his interaction with his three friends. Well, we need to move ahead now and get to the sudden appearance of a fourth character in this story, whom you have not heard from up until now, whose name is Elihu. Now, Elihu is the only name in this story that is Hebraic. It's actually the same, almost exactly the same word as Elijah. So some scholars think that this is a later addition to the text of the original story of Job and that it was added maybe later on by Hebrew scholars and Hebrew prophetic people to add what they considered a necessity theologically to the unfolding story. And here's and the funny thing about it is a lot of people think that about Elihu, that he's a prophet. But as many think he's a buffoon. They think, well, the reason God doesn't include Elihu in his rebuke of the original three friends is because he was a prophet and everything he said was right. Well, when you read Elihu's statements about Job, some of them are right, some of them are not right. But his whole attitude uh, leaves variations of of uh, opinion, and there there you go again. So you got one bunch that thinks Elihu is a prophet, and you got a whole other bunch that thinks, based on their scholarship, that Elihu is a buffoon, that he's a young twerp, that he's uh, inexperienced in life, and he's hot-headed, and the reason God doesn't rebuke him is because he's too young and ignorant to be as guilty as the three older friends of Job were. <laughs> well, here, here again, so which one is it? Which one is it? I got to have an answer. Which one is it? That's so typical of us. Two Jews, three opinions. Which one is it? Which one is it? Well, it could be this, or maybe it could be this. You have to wrestle with it. You have to struggle with it. You have to pray through it. And then you have to start over again. And sometimes it looks like it's got to be this way. And then sometimes it looks like it's got to be that way. And that just freaks out we Western Greco-Roman thinking Christians especially because we got to have a clear answer. This is why you got people who say, now where's the scripture for that? Give me, give me the chapter and verse for that. And there's just a whole bunch of things in life that there's not a chapter and verse for. But if you think God is a magician and you you think the Bible is a spell book and you've got to find the right spell and say the right incantation to get the right results, and if you don't, you might end up cursed. See, I'm trying not to make fun of people or be unkind, but I, I I just hate religion. I hate it. 
And the whole story here, among other things, is God saying, I love Job, Job loves me. And in the face of all his creedal, legalistic, religious thinking, he he has managed to press through and, and know me. See, Job somehow does know things about God that, that his creed doesn't in, in, include. For instance, I know that my Redeemer lives. And though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh will I see God. How did Job know that? There's nothing in his creed that would suggest it. There wasn't even anything in the early Hebraic theology that suggested that. That would not be understood theologically uh, until much later, almost uh, all the way into the the Babylonian uh, captivity period and and then the Second Temple Judaism. Well, he knew it because he was hanging around his Redeemer. He didn't know he was his Redeemer, but he was still hanging around him. Are you spending time with God in such a way that what you don't know about God can leak through to you without you having had any dogmatic teaching about it? Oh, look out, Clay. You might be pointing people into a place where they can be deceived. Oh, really? Jesus said if you ask him for a fish, he won't give you a snake. If you ask him for a bread, he won't give you a stone. But religion says you better not get outside the little tiny confines of our dogma and start poking around asking questions that we haven't answered. If we don't answer it, there is no reason to even ask the question. If we don't have the answer, there is no answer. And you see that dogmatism in everything from so-called practice of medicine to religion to every area of life where the male ego uh, has dominated and sometimes the female ego. But anyway, I I don't know what to think about Elihu. Uh, I really don't. Uh, Sometimes he was prophetic and sometimes he was buffoonish and sometimes he was right and sometimes he was wrong. And if he was an addition to the story that was put in later on by uh, Hebrew scribes, it doesn't take away from the story. And it, it some people think it doesn't add much to the story. I will say this, though. And this is one reason why it may be a, a Hebrewism, a, a Hebrew uh, in, in incursion into additions because they thought they needed a, some way to to fill the gap between the abrupt end of Job's statements and the appearance of God and the beginning of God's answer to Job. Elihu does say some things in his preparation uh, for God to step on the scene and say a lot of the same things. So I don't know. You read it for yourself. Just see what you think. See what the Holy Spirit tells you and then let me know. Maybe I can learn from you. But anyway, now we move to what I really wanted to get to in our closing session together and that is I told you, I promised you when I was listing all of Job's terrible suffering 
that there was going to be a, be a moment when you would be satisfied, hopefully, satisfied with the, how this story goes. It'll not be because you got a one plus one equals two answer. It will not be because things have been put right like the end of a movie, like we all, we want the ending to, to all be a happy ending. Job, Job does have a happy ending kind of, but it's not a happy ending. That's not what's going on here. Learn to think of Job's story as not a happy ending, but a new beginning. Not a happy ending, but a new beginning. It's just like the resurrection. The Lord Jesus Christ rises from the dead. What a happy ending. No, that's not true at all. The happy the happy ending. I, I remember as a kid hearing Messiah. And I thought the Hallelujah Chorus was the ending of Messiah. But, you know, we all stood up at the Hallelujah Chorus. And I thought, well, we'll leave now. Then everybody sat back down. And then we had another 45 minutes to go. And at the end of the Hallelujah Chorus, which is actually the music celebrating uh, the enthronement of the Lord Jesus at his resurrection, along with lift up your heads, O ye gates, be lifted up, you everlasting arms, and the King of glory will come in. He's returning to his throne. Then it all quiets down, and the next voice you hear or the, is the voice of Job singing through the soprano solo. I know that my Redeemer lives. And though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh will I see God. And I had a revelation there in that music hall that night as a 12-year-old kid. I had a revelation the resurrection is not the happy ending of the otherwise difficult, sad story of the gospel. The resurrection is a new beginning. When the Lord Jesus Christ stepped out of the tomb, the new world was born. The new age was birthed. And we've been seeing the unfolding of that working its way out into the human experience for 2,000 years. And the same thing is being shown here in the book of Job. Job's story does end happily. But that's not the end of a story. It's the beginning of something brand new. What's new? Well, Job says to God, after God answers Job with the non-answer answer of chapters 38 and 39 and 40 and 41. Job says, now, well, first of all, before I say what Job says, let me, let me just say this. Remember when I talked about throwing my Bible across the room? Uh, something I'm not proud of. But I meant it. I threw my Bible like a Frisbee. I can still see it sailing across the living room, striking the wall. But it was because I had just read chapters 38, 39, 40, and 41. And I didn't get my answer. 
I didn't get my one plus one equals two answer. I didn't get my Greco-Roman easy to understand puzzle piece that made all of life make sense. So I didn't have to suffer anymore. I didn't have to wrestle anymore. I didn't have to struggle anymore. I didn't have to wait for God anymore. And the whole meaning of this struggle of Job is his learning to wait. That's why we we speak of the patience of Job, the endurance of Job. You read Job sometimes, you think, man, he doesn't sound very patient. Oh, he was he was enduring in his impatience until he learned to wait on God. Not wait like somebody waits for an elevator, but waiting with expectation and trust. I told you last session. To wait is to trust, and to trust is to wait. And so, God, God doesn't answer. I mean, he, he, when you read those stories, you can put inflections in God's voice that God didn't put there. Like, again, like the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> when you read. When you read that God was searching for Adam and Eve in the garden and he, he calls out, "Where Adam, where are you? Don Francisco wrote a wonderful song back in the 70s called Adam, Where Are You? You ought to look it up on the internet. But you know how I used to read that? It was just automatic in my imagination. Adam, where are you? That's the way I would read it. That, that's that's the sound effect that was in my head. Sadly, it was it was an echo of my father's drunken voice inflections before the Lord healed all that, which He did. Bless His holy name. But. Uh, that's not what that's not what was going on. First of all, God God didn't need information to tell him where Adam was. He needed Adam to say where Adam was. But did w- without going into too much detail that we don't have time to cover here, uh many years ago I discovered a text by a dear lady who understood ancient Hebrew musical patterns. And she discovered a musical pattern in the text of the Torah that, if she was reading it accurately, would provide a musical soundtrack that would exhibit certain emotions underneath the text. And I believe she was reading it correctly when she said the music underneath this this unfolding story of Adam and God and God saying, Adam, where are you? The music underneath it is not drum-beating militaristic anger. It's sad, wistful, poetically sad. Adam, where are you? And here again, that we, we we tend to stick our own human emotions even in that and say, well, you know, God was hoping for uh, something better, but 
you know, it turned out that way. No, you you don't really think God was taken by surprise. I mean, we we hear sermon after sermon after sermon about how God was his heart was broken, and I don't. I just don't know if his heart was broken or not. Not he wasn't happy about it, or he wasn't sad about it. It was just an unfolding thing, and that brings. Let me just interject this. I'm repeating myself, but I'll say it again and again and again. What is God after in the big picture? What is God ultimately after? He's after the bringing forth of a, a race of sons and daughters in his own image who will love like he loves, who will hate what he hates, love what he loves, who are beyond the capacity to be tempted, who are beyond the capacity to to fall ever again, and in the process, destroy all evil out of the universe and restore everything that evil destroyed. That's what God's after. And that's what he's after at the creation of Adam and Eve. We, we got this idea that God had this idea one day. I mean, he's going to create this man and this woman, and he's going to put them in a garden, and he's going to have such fun playing with them, and you know they're going to be his little toys. And dad, gummit, the snake comes in and messes everything up, and God's heart is broken, and then he's got to figure out what to do. So he starts working on the plan of redemption. I mean, I, I, I'm only exaggerating a little bit. That's not what this is about at all. This is about something happening in the heart of the great cherub. Something that could not have happened had not God allowed it to happen because God wants freedom, because God wants love, and freedom has to be there if there's love. And if there is freedom, there's potential of wrong choice, and wrong choice is against the will of God. The will of God is always for good, and so anything against God's will will produce evil and suffering. It won't produce good. That's why when you sin, you know, you think, well, I'm free, and this looks good, and it's going to work out okay, and God, God understands, and he'll forgive me. No, 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 no. Anything you choose that's not his will is going to be painful, because it's going to be wrong. And so God lovingly lets your pain hurt until you cry out to him for the, the, the wrong to no longer be a part of you. That's part of redemption. It's not being covered over with a justification legalistic band-aid while sin still corrupts underneath the band-aid, which is what most evangelicals think is justification and redemption. Anyway, that cherub set in motion something in the universe that is destructive, that is the ultimate destruction. It's, it, it, it's evil. And so God, again, is not reacting to something that he doesn't know how to quite react to. He's, he's got it all under control, to use an overused, misunderstood phrase. God is certainly in control. And so this whole story of Adam and Eve and the garden uh, is God setting in motion the trap that will 
capture evil and eventually utterly destroy it while utterly freeing man from its effects and filling the universe with what God originally intended. So let's get to chapter 42 where Job responds to God. Now, the reason I told that story about God's tone of voice in the garden is because we have a similar problem here. The reason I threw my Bible across the room is when I read Job, when I read God's, God's opening statement to Job, and just to refresh your thinking on it, let me, let me reread it now. And in your mind, you might want to use whatever voice inflection you tend to want to put upon it. But you see, I had all this unforgiveness toward my father. I had all this undealt with bitterness. You know, David said in Psalm 18 to the, to the crooked, God appears crooked. If, if God appears crooked to me, it's because my heart is crooked. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You'll be able to see God if your heart is pure. What is a pure heart? It's not a heart that doesn't have any struggles in it or sin in it or, or uh, uh, brokenness in it. It's a heart that is set on knowing the real God. That's what it means to be pure of heart. Well, anyway... And the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. There's this great whirlwind, which is pretty scary. I've heard preachers just embellish on that whirlwind. And, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I told y'all, Hebrew is very poetic and it's very wide in its capacities for, for uh, vividness. Uh, I remember one Hebrew teacher that I sat under, and he's a good man, but he really went to town on on this whole thing of uh, God didn't come down in the garden in the cool of the day to walk with Adam and Eve. And then he expounded on the Hebrew words, the cool of the day, and walked, and he interpreted that to mean in the in the the flow of his awesome presence, he stormed into the garden and marched with Adam and Eve. I mean, it was just it was just obviously his militarism coming through. It, it twisted his whole vision of that, and began to twist ours too. If I hadn't resisted it. Same thing's happening here. The Lord answered out of the whirlwind. See, out of, same thing with Elijah. You know, if, if Elihu is actually a, a, a picture of Elijah, then we need to keep this in mind. Uh, Elijah, you know, the, 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 the great wind, but God wasn't in the wind. The great fire, God wasn't in the fire. He was in a still, small voice. Gentle, 
parental loving voice. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? But see, when I read that, when I heard that, I would hear the inflections of all the male authority figures in my life who had been jerks and had been uh, sources of anger and confrontation with me. And I was projecting that up onto God, throwing my Bible across the room. Which, of course, immediately made God fall off his throne in just absolute disgust and and shock that I would behave that way, right? No. <laughs> who Who is this who asks all these hard-to-answer questions? That's, that's what it means by darkened counsel, by words without knowledge. See, you, if you read that, that King James, King James can really set you up for this. You can read it like, who is this who dares to come before me, the great and terrible Oz. Well, no, what he's saying is, who is this who asks all these hard questions that he, he doesn't have the answer to, doesn't even understand enough to ask the right questions, is what he's saying. Stop thinking like a little child and stand up and tighten your belt and act like a man because I want to talk to you about some some grown man-sized stuff. And so we begin this tremendous parade of dazzling issues from creation, which I, I won't take the time to go into, but... It's worth reading. And uh, there's some stuff in there about Leviathan and the behemoth, which I wish we could talk about. But I would tell you, Leviathan is not uh, a mere sea serpent, and behemoth is not a, what was it? A hippopotamus? It's ridiculous. Anyway, way, way much more going on there than that, but... In chapter 42, when it's all said and done, Job answered the Lord and said, I know now that you can do everything and that no thought can be withheld from you and nothing you desire can be stopped. Who is he that hides counsel without knowledge? You ask. So I understand. I understand now. I, I I spoke things I don't understand. Things that are too wonderful for me, which I I didn't I didn't know how to verbalize. Now, let's stop here. Do you think God was hoping to make Job feel belittled and stupid because He was asking? huge questions after his life has been shattered and broken and he's he's lost all of his children and his body is one giant boil Do, is that what god is like 
Is, is that what you think God is like? Well, sadly, if you are, if you have the habit of reading the Bible and treating everything in it as equal to John 3.16, and you don't understand how to read everything in the light of the revelation of Jesus, and you read everything with equal authority, then sometimes you read the Bible and God loves you, and sometimes you read the Bible and God's a drunken father who wants to kick you with his boots and make fun of you as you cry. And all that's coming out of your own broken heart and misinforming you about God. And so here's, here's the conclusion. Here's what Job came to. Now, you can be mad on Job's behalf at God if you want to, but Job is satisfied with what he's been shown. If Job is satisfied, I think you, me and you ought to be. Not only should we be satisfied, but we should follow Job's path. Because Job says, I have been hearing about you. And I thought I understood you from what I heard. But the agony of life has brought me to a point where I've had to see you. And I repent of of all that I said. I repent in dust and ashes. And that's that, that phrase there, I repent in dust and ashes. D- dust and ashes is an, is an ancient, ancient symbol preceding Hebrewisms that refers to uh, what you know it refers to. Uh, to repent in dust and ashes means humility, uh, an awareness, and a, a, recon- a recognizing of our weakness and inability to grasp reality in our mourning and our grieving. And uh, I, I had to have a personal encounter with you. It's what I begged for. In fact, it's what I was being lambasted for by my religious friends. How dare I ask for this very thing you're granting me, and that's a face-to-face encounter with you. How dare I have the audacity to think I could ask for a face-to-face encounter with God. Well, that's exactly what God wanted. Second Chronicles chapter 16. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking for one who longs to know him, that he might show himself strong on their behalf. This is exactly what God wanted. This is why God said to Satan, he's a perfect man. Regardless of his struggles and his misunderstandings and his failures and his sins, he's not, he's not doing right because he's afraid of my retribution. He's doing right because he knows me and he knows right is what I am. And he's trying to draw near me the best he knows how. And I'll draw near to him then. Are you hearing this for you? Are you hearing it for you? It doesn't matter if I'm interpreting things in Job correctly or not. I got this I got this part down for sure. He longs for you 
to draw near to him so that he can draw near to you. And James echoes that when he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Humble yourself in the eyes of the Lord and he will raise you up. Okay, we've got to bring this to a close and probably the best way to do that is for me to point you to the two books that I would most want you to pursue if you wanted to go deeper. One of them is very academic, but it's so well written because uh, Dr. Michael Brown is not only an excellent Hebrew scholar, but he's an excellent communicator. So he knows how to break hard things down uh, into a very readable form. You can get his book called Job. I love the title. Job, uh, The Faith to Challenge God. That's a very good good title. And uh, that's for people who really want to go deep with this and uh, make a study of it verse by verse. But if you want more of a heart-to-heart conversation on the subject, then Everybody needs to read Oswald Chambers' Baffled to Fight Better. You can find both of these books. Job, The Faith to Challenge God by Michael Brown, and Baffled to Fight Better by Oswald Chambers. You can get both of them online, I'm sure. Contact me if you have trouble finding them, if you're interested. Thank you all for enduring this with me. And uh, Lord willing, we'll talk to you next time.